And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. And this season, we're going to be moving through different eras of church history to analyze how the church engaged in global mission. And today, we're going to be talking about missions in the early church. And this is actually one of my personal favorite time periods to study as it relates to global missions. And today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Instead of me interviewing someone else, I'm actually going to be interviewed on this topic. And so before we get started with the episode, I wanted to introduce you to my friend, Austin Maddox. Austin is a student here at Southern Seminary. Uh, He and I go to the same church, and he helps with a lot of the behind scenes work of Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. And so today, Austin is going to be hosting the podcast. So Austin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. I think it's safe to say that anyone who knows Paul Aiken knows he's got a heart for the Great Commission. Obviously, with this podcast and what you talk about and teach at Southern Seminary. So this is definitely going to be in your wheelhouse. I'm glad that our listeners are going to get a chance to hear from you a little more than usual. So let's jump in. We've been talking about church history eras and, and the missions, how those played out in those eras. And last last week, you talked with Dr. Plummer about apostolic church era. And this week, we're going to be talking about the early church. And so kind of explain to us what the difference in those areas are. What timeline are we talking about here? Yeah. So typically, when we think about apostolic mission, we're thinking about the time period of Jesus and the apostles. And so wherever you want to draw that line, whether it's AD 33, the way I like to think about it is roughly AD 33 up to around the year 100. I consider apostolic missions. And then just just for the sake of clarity, I kind of consider the early church kind of that period of kind of 100 to 300, 100 to 400, somewhere in that range. And so when we think about mission in the early church, I'm pretty much talking about the era of kind of 100 AD, roughly to three to 400 AD. What was the state of the church in the Roman Empire during this era? You know, it's interesting to think through because we read our New Testaments and we realize that Jesus is crucified. He is then resurrected and he ascends into heaven. He gives the Great Commission. He tells about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then you have Pentecost and apostolic mission kind of moves forward from there. But, But as Christianity goes forward, I think we often forget that Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. And so Christians were smaller in numbers. They were really not the dominant religious group of the Roman Empire. That hasn't happened until many centuries later. And for the most part, during this early church era, Christians were living, we can say, at at the margins of the empire. They were not the major governors, rulers, leaders of the time. In many ways, they were targets of persecution, often by Roman emperors and others. And they were often viewed as 
uh, very odd and suspicious by people in society. And yet at the same time, we know that with all of these things going on, that by God's grace during this era, the church grew and it grew in a pretty tremendous way. Let's talk about that growth a little bit. Where did the church go geographically? Like where were the hubs throughout the Roman empire and elsewhere? Yeah. So obviously you you think about in the book of Acts, we think about a place like uh, the city of Antioch, right? This is the first place where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. We're, we're told that in the book of Acts. And so Antioch would have been one of those early mission sending hubs. You think about people like Paul and Barnabas who were sent out from Antioch and others. Then, you know, you kind of think about a place like Rome, where there were a large number of Christians during this particular point in time. There were Christians in parts of Syria. You know, we tend to think of Syria today. We think about a war-torn country that's been in the news a lot over the last five to 10 years. But this was a, a major center for the church in, in this era. There were other parts of maybe the, the Roman Empire. We think about places across Asia Minor, where we might think about the seven churches that end up showing up in the book of Revelation as well. So there were different hubs and bases for the church in different spots geographically. But when we think about the, the church at this point, we're predominantly thinking about the Roman Empire. Uh, and that's where the majority of Christians would have been located at this point in time. There's some evidence that maybe there was some Christian activity beyond that. You know, we know that tradition states that Thomas took the gospel to India. But for the most part, when we think about this era, we're thinking about the, the Roman Empire. That's good. So with apostolic missions in that era of church history, we're talking about people like Paul, Barnabas, the guys who are in our Bibles. What about early missions? Who are who are some of the key figures, maybe big names, big missionary names in that time period? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great that's a great question, Austin. I don't know that we have the label of missionary attached to some of these early Christian leaders. Uh, but certainly these were people who were living out the gospel in their context. They were boldly proclaiming the gospel in their context. And oftentimes these were people who were subject of persecution and suffering, and then oftentimes martyrdom as well. So when I think about some of the key figures in the early church, let's just say in in Asia Minor, one of the people that comes to mind is Polycarp. Now, maybe some of our listeners are familiar with the name Polycarp, but Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. We think modern day Turkey is where this church would have been located. And Polycarp is known as being one of John's disciples. And yet Polycarp was one of these early Christian leaders who was actually martyred and killed for his faith. And so I just want to read an excerpt from Fox's Book of Martyrs, where Polycarp, under capture in the face of suffering and persecution, actually uh, spoke these words to his captors, quote, for 86 years, I have been his servant, talking about serving the Lord. For 86 years, I've been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so Polycarp there is giving a verbal testimony of his relationship with Christ. And even in the face of death, he says, look, for 86 years, I have served him as king. How in the world can I blaspheme this man and, and go back on, on him at this particular point in my life? And so Polycarp was one of those early Christian leaders who was martyred. You can kind of go down the line and you think about somebody like Irenaeus, uh, the Bishop of Lyons, or you go down and you think about Athanasius and Alexandria or even Tertullian and some of these early church fathers who were known not only for writing theology, but also for 
being a, a very vivid picture of what does it look like to follow Christ in the cities, the major cities, the major hubs of the Roman Empire at this particular point in time. Yeah, and, and suffering and persecution was such a huge part of what it meant to be Christian in that, in that period of time. Talk a little bit about that. What impact did persecution and suffering have on the early church? Yeah. So I think as we think about this, again, we're thinking about a time period that's roughly three to 400 years long is kind of what we're thinking of in our minds. And sometimes when we talk about the early church, I think we tend to think about, we act like persecution was a constant. That's not entirely accurate or or true. I think what we can say is that persecution was frequent, uh, but it doesn't mean that it was always constant. But there were certain waves, major waves of persecution that would come during the Roman Empire times, depending on who the particular emperor was at any given time. And so some emperors, Nero, for example, they were known for being more harsh towards Christians. During the time of other emperors, there was a little bit more peace. And so we hear things about like Pax Romana and Roman peace and some of the things that were going on during those times as well. With that said, what we do know is that where the church was being established, where the church was popping up, whether it be in mainland Western Europe or across the Mediterranean in North Africa, we have examples, real examples of suffering and persecution of these early Christians. And one of the most notable stories that that really always kind of stands out to me is a story in Carthage, North Africa. So you think about what would be considered modern day Tunisia today, the ancient city of Carthage, and you have two women, the story of Perpetua and Felicitas. Now, These are our two women. Perpetua came from a a wealthy family in Carthage, and Felicitas was her servant girl who was there, who was accompanying her. Uh, Now, both women, even though they were from different socioeconomic groups in the city, both of them had a couple of things in common. One is they were both Christians. Two, they were both pregnant. And one day, as they're meeting and gathering with a group of Christians, they, along with many others, are arrested. And as they are arrested, Perpetua is is nursing her newborn baby, and Felicitas later gives birth to her baby while they are in prison. And Fox's Book of Martyrs and other sources tell us that uh, Perpetua's father came to her multiple times and begged her to recant of her Christian faith. He he begged her to, to go back on her claim of following Christ so she could spare her life. And time and time again, when given the opportunity, she said no. And in fact, in one very moving setting, Perpetua's father is there holding her baby, and Perpetua is standing before a local governor who tells her, if you just offer a sacrifice to the emperor, then we will free you, and you'll be let go. And she says, I will not do it. I will not offer the sacrifice. And you can just imagine just the heartache of her father holding her baby and saying, what are you doing? You're going to die, and your baby's going to have no parent to raise them. But this was the cost of what it meant to follow Christ during this era. And so according to tradition, Perpetua and Felicitas on March 7, 203 are marched into the Carthage Amphitheater. And eventually there are bulls that are released to attempt to gore these Christians. It doesn't end up happening that way. Uh, And so they end up sending gladiators into the arena. And eventually these gladiators kill Perpetua and Felicitas with the sword. And so that's a story that always stands out to me, a story of two faithful young women in North Africa who were willing to risk everything for the sake of Christ and who really had counted the cost of what does it mean to follow Christ during this time period. Yeah, I think we read that and we hear that 
and uh, we go, what in the world? How, how did the church grow at all if they're experiencing this kind of persecution? This era of time is known as a time of great growth in Christianity and in the church, and but yet we hear these terrible stories of persecution. Why did the church grow in this era? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And there's been a lot of literature and documentation about the the rapid growth of the church in the Roman Empire during this era. And I, I would say there's I think there's several factors that are at play. I mentioned early on um, in the beginning of our conversation about Christians being seen at uh, or living life at the margins of the empire. And in many ways, they were seen and viewed as suspicious by local people around them. And that there's many reasons for that. The neighbors in the neighborhood would hear things about when Christians gathered together, they would eat flesh and drink blood. Now, we know, obviously, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, but the, the people in the neighborhood would hear these kinds of things, and they would wonder, what are these Christians doing behind closed doors? They would hear about things like give one another a holy kiss, and they would wonder, why are different men and women going into, into these closed homes, and they're kissing each other? What's going on here? And so there were just a lot of different things that caused people to view Christians with suspicion. But at the same time, there was something that was attractive about all of that. And the way that Christians lived their lives was very much in contrast with the way an average person in the Roman Empire would have lived their lives. And so even we have a historical documentation of Roman emperors and governors writing and, and talking about the deeds that many Christians would engage in, the way they were loving and caring for people, people who were not even part of their fold. This was a time where Christians were modeling and living out the gospel in a way that was very visible to a watching world. And so the way that I like to think through the kind of the main reasons for growth, I like to break it down into kind of three main categories. One is you had a picture of genuine conversion. When somebody trusted in Christ for salvation, that was a a very visible decision and people could see heart change and life change immediately. And so you would have you would have changed behavior you would have a, a transformed way of thinking, even where you kind of considered yourself belonging in the society, in the culture was different. You now belong to a new family, to a new body, to the church. And so conversion was genuine and people saw that take place. I would say kind of connected to that, the, the worship gatherings were, were very distinct. Uh, I remember we talked about this even, Austin, when you were in class with me, but I want to read just quickly a description of early church worship gatherings. And you'll see the contrast in maybe many of our church gatherings today. It says, from the second century onward, non-believers were barred from Christian assemblies. <laughs> so non-believers were not allowed into Christian assemblies. In a world in which Christianity was illegal, the churches, fearing the arrival of spies or informers, would assign deacons to stand at the door to screen those attempting to come in. Were the people who were wanting to come in, were they lambs or wolves? Only the former were allowed in. And of these, only those who had been baptized were allowed to attend both the service of communion and the service of teaching. The others, admitted as catechumens going through a, a catechesis process, were allowed only to attend the readings and the teachings before being dismissed. In other words, what, what this description is saying is if you were not a Christian, if you were not a baptized Christian, then you were only able to hear the word preached, but that was it. You were barred from the other parts of the worship service. Christian worship was designed to enable Christians to worship God. It was not designed to attract non-Christians. It was not, quote, seeker sensitive. 
for seekers were not allowed in. Christian worship thus assisted in the outreach of the churches indirectly and as a byproduct by shaping the lives and character of individual Christians and their communities so that they would model the way of Christ. So what you have here is you have church gatherings where they're designed for followers of Jesus to build up and edify the body. And what you had is people wondering, and they were curious and trying to figure out what is it that Christians are doing as they meet and as they worship together in uh, these contexts. And so I would say all of that factored in, I would say one other piece is that you have average everyday Christians being very bold in their witness in the community. Uh, And what I mean by that is you have everyday Christians who are not necessarily preachers or pastors or theologians, but everyday businessmen and businesswomen, they were the ones who were boldly declaring, boldly sharing the good news of the gospel every single day as they were going on their way. In fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs has a quote that says, in that age, every Christian was a missionary. We see some of this in the New Testament. You know, you think about the book of Acts, you think about the scattering of the believers in Acts chapter eight, because there's persecution there with Stephen and others. And so the church scatters and it spreads. And eventually we hear about this church at Antioch. Now we have no idea who planted the church at Antioch, but it's it's very likely that it was average everyday lay Christians who were spread because of persecution, scattered because of persecution, and they took the gospel with them and started sharing good news everywhere that they went. So I think you factor in all of these things and you can see why the church was kind of primed to grow during this particular time. The Great Commission is a call to go, and a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Can you talk a little bit about the public witness of Christians in that era? Do we have any record of what evangelism looked like in the early church? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, one thing I think it's helpful to understand this question is we need to understand that the the cities and the environment in the Roman Empire at this particular time is very different from this, our cities and our environment here in North America in 2023. Uh, what I mean by that is, is the Christians were very much living their lives in the public eye every single day. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a, there's a man by the name of Gerald uh, Sitzer, and he wrote a book called Resilient Faith. And it's a, it's a really helpful book. It says, how did the early Christian uh, third way change the world? And he gives a great description here that I think helps make sense of the public witness of these Christians. He says, these cities were a different kind of cities than ours. We tend to value privacy and property in modern Western cities. Home ownership is the ideal, though apartment living has become increasingly popular. Modern houses have eliminated the front porch in favor of decks, 
and patios in the backyard where gardens grow, families barbecue, and children play. Fences keep out all intruders and neighbors too, for that matter. Apartments do not allow for the same kind of spacious living, but they still protect personal privacy. We treat our homes as if they were a refuge. When leaving them, we travel mostly by car from one destination to the next, as if cars functioned as a kind of wormhole between the worlds of home and stores, markets, gyms, schools, and work. It is impossible to understand the success of the early Christian movement unless we recognize the difference between ancient city, ancient cities and modern ones and the impact that ancient cities had on how the church grew. And he goes on to, to give a description of the homes that some of these Christians lived in. He says, the vast majority of urban dwellers lived in apartment buildings, which range in height from three to eight stories. They were poorly constructed and thus vulnerable to destruction by fire, flood, and earthquake. Considering the cramped conditions, odor and noise from the street, and general lack of comfort, urban dwellers tried to spend as much time as they could in public places, thus avoiding the confinement of such bleak quarters. There was virtually no privacy in these cities. Consequently, the life of ordinary people was always on display a spectacle for the world to see what people believed, how they behaved at work and at home and in the marketplace, where they shopped and worshiped and traveled, who they counted as friends and enemies. All of this was a matter of public knowledge. And it was in this environment that the Christian movement took root and flourished. And so that example just kind of tells you that Christians were living in the public eye. They were out and about. They weren't sequestered in their homes. You know, many Many times in the Western world, people will leave their homes at eight and they get home by five and then they kind of shut themselves in. And the only time they have interaction with outsiders is maybe during during the work hours. Uh, he's saying here that it sounds like for the most part, Christians were, were out of the home kind of eight to eight or eight to 10 because they didn't really want to be in their homes because they were small. They weren't well constructed. There was all kinds of issues with them. And so people were gathering in parks, in bathhouses, in restaurants, and all these other in churches and synagogues and different places. And as they were, they were engaging in sharing good news. And so this gives us a picture of the public witness of these early believers. So obviously the church is growing rapidly in the West. And when we say West, we're talking about this area of the Mediterranean. What about the East? Is there anything going on over there? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, oftentimes when when we tell the story of mission history, we often talk about it as the flow of the gospel from the Roman Empire towards the West, towards Western Europe. That is very much true and and accurate. But the reality is, is there was also gospel expansion that took place to the East uh, as well. Now, an important caveat needs to be mentioned here. That is. The early church in the East is often referred to as the Nestorian church. And I think it's important that we note that that connection with Nestorius or Nestorianism is something that in terms of church history can be a little bit problematic. And for those of you who may not be aware, there was a council, a church council at Chalcedon 451 AD, where Nestorius, this particular man who was a proponent of a particular view, he was actually condemned as a heretic and his doctrine was viewed as a heresy and so he argued on he argued for the the dual nature of Christ that Christ's divine and human nature were completely separate which we know from the scripture that that is not true 
Nestorianism was condemned as a heresy at the council at Chalcedon in 451 AD. So oftentimes the reason the story to the East is not told is because of the connection there with Nestorianism. With that said, and though there is an asterisk by the church in the East, we need to make sure we put an asterisk by that. I do believe that there were probably some genuine believers that were in the mix. And there are examples and stories of the gospel traveling along the Silk Road through Central Asia, as far as Japan and China and other locations during this time. It's interesting for us to point out, and I think historically accurate for us to say, yes, the church predominantly grew in the West, and that's what we know about the most, but there was also some movement to the East as well. That's interesting. One of the, I guess, high points of church history in this era is the conversion of Constantine, which happened in 312. What impact, we could probably spend an entire episode on that alone, but briefly, what kind of impact did that have on the mission of the early church, the conversion of the the Roman emperor? Yeah, you know, you tend to think that a a governor or a ruler or a president or a prime minister or whatever it is, or king, whatever it is you want to call it, that that person becoming a Christian, you typically would say that is a very good and positive thing. And I think in the case of Constantine, I'm sure there were some positives that were connected to that. You know, one of the positives was that Christianity, which was once an illegal religion, was then made one of the legal religions. And then you know, after Constantine, eventually it was made the official religion. And so that that was a, certainly a good thing for Christianity to now be recognized as one of the legal religions in the Roman Empire. But for the most part, I think we can say that the conversion of Constantine over the long haul maybe wasn't the most positive development for the spread of the gospel during this time. You see, before Constantine mentioned Christians were living at the margins of the empire, that they were not the leaders, the ones with the political power and the influence. After Constantine, after he becomes king and becomes ruler, becomes leader, you start having this mixing of politics and religion that happens in the Roman Empire, in the Roman Catholic Church. And you start mixing these two things together. And what was once at the margins is now thrust to the center. And you start having power and other things that have the potential to corrupt. The church, in one sense, sort of loses some of its missionary nature, some of its missionary DNA to some degree. And we know that even kind of following through on the history of the Holy Roman Empire, that eventually you get to a Rome that collapses. You know, even though Christianity is the official religion, you have a rapid moral decline that takes place in the Roman Empire kind of post-Constantine. And so I think it's important for us to note that the conversion of, the, of Constantine is a, a historical fact. But it was something that certainly changed the nature of mission uh, in the early church. It's really interesting. All right. I think we're going to do your famous lightning round questions now. Favorite books on this era? Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I love Fox's Book of Martyrs. I think that's a really helpful resource that kind of just tells us the stories of those who have who have died for their faith kind of going all the way back to the apostles and up to roughly modern day. And so I think that's a really helpful resource that tells a lot of great stories in the mix. There's an, an Anabaptist scholar named Alan Kreider, who has written several books here. He, he has one called the, the Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And I think that's a really helpful book and resource as well. So those are two books that would stand out for me in this era. I think really any 
history of missions book is going to give you something related to this time period. So there's another book by a man by the name of John Mark Terry, Encountering a History of Missions, that I think is a helpful resource as well. So I would encourage listeners to to check out or, or pay attention to any of those. We probably should have covered this in the first episode, but we could do it now. Why a podcast season on missions history? Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's a great question. I think when we think about history, why why do you take time to study history? I, I kind of my mind immediately kind of goes to four four things. One is we know that history teaches us. Studying the the good, the bad, the ugly of our family story as as Christians, uh, it helps shape our practice. It helps us avoid old pitfalls. And so there's there's a teaching component when we examine and look at history. Second, I would say history humbles us. There's nothing new under the sun. So our new innovative and creative mission strategy is is not original. It's not perfect. Mission history helps humble us and put things into perspective. Number three, I think history shows us how the gospel got to us. You know, we often forget that there was a time when our ancestors were unreached with no witness, with no access to the gospel. And by God's grace, somebody shared with someone in our family, and eventually we heard the gospel. You know, when you think about the book of Acts and the disciples are gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, when they hear the words ends of the earth, they're talking about places like North America, places where we live today. And so history tells us that story. How how did the gospel get from Jerusalem here to where I live and and where I work? Uh, And then lastly, I think when we look at history, it inspires us, right? We get to to read these stories, these accounts from the first century to today, and it has an impact on our lives. We study the past because it helps make sense of the present and tells us God's plan of redemption in the world and what role and part we might be able to play in that. Speaking of those lessons that we learn from history, what are two or three things we can learn specifically from this era, early church. Two things come to mind here. I would say, number one, I think the way that the Christians during the, the early church period, the way they viewed themselves, I think is very important. The way they identified themselves is very important for us. And so there's a, a very rich Greek word. I did some study on this word in my dissertation. It's the word paroikos. It shows up in a variety of different places in the Bible. It shows up really in with Abraham, with Moses, with David in the Old Testament. And then it shows up in First Peter. It shows up in Hebrews. And this word paroikos essentially means alien resident, stranger, sojourner, foreigner. When Peter writes his, his letter, he writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then later he refers to them as strangers and aliens and sojourners. And this was an identifier, a category that the early church would would view themselves with. And this is the way they would describe and define themselves in many ways. And I think there's something to that for us, right? Sometimes we want this place to be our home. We want to be on earth forever. Uh, We don't want to go to heaven because we don't know what it's going to be like. And, And they viewed themselves as alien residents. Here today, gone tomorrow, this world is not our home. And yet the way they lived their lives, they, they lived in such a way that was attractive, that, that was in contrast to the cultural norms of the day. So I think there's a lot that we can, can learn from that in terms of that alien resident mentality or identity. So that kind of paroikos identity, that's one. The second would be just the way in which they counted the cost. Choosing to follow Christ meant something. Uh, it meant sacrifice. 
Persecution was not something that was strange and abnormal. Persecution was normal. They knew if I choose to follow Christ, there's the likelihood that my life is going to be difficult, that there's going to be physical harm, that there's going to be suffering and persecution at some point as I follow Christ. And I think for many of us in the West, we tend to think of persecution or suffering as something that happens to Christians over there, never is going to happen to us. And uh, I think there's a lot that we can learn about what does it really mean to count the cost to follow Christ? If choosing to follow Christ could cost me my marriage, my job, my home, would I still choose to follow Christ? And these early Christians are examples of choosing Christ in the midst of all of that. And so I think we can be challenged by that and can learn much from that. That's really good. Paul, thank you so much for this conversation today. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing from you about this topic. Thanks, Austin. I really appreciate it. I'll sign off here the way I normally do. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu slash BGS, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.